What goes into writing a feature for Film Comment? In this episode, three of our contributors who appear in the July-August issue, Ashley Clark, Yonja Talu, and Eric Hines, discuss the research and reasoning that went into their articles, as well as some things that didn't make the final cut. Plus, editor Nicholas Rapold offers a roadmap to the rest of the issue. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor. And today's a very special episode because I am joined by... Nicholas Rapold, editor of Film Comment. Eric Hines, freelance writer and associate curator of film at the Museum of the Living Image. Yanja Talu, filmmaker. And is it fair to say I'm a regular contributor as well? Yes. yes. A regular contributor to Film Comment. Absolutely. And Ashley Clark, um, contributor to Film Comment, The Guardian, Reverse Shot, and others, and film programmer. Excellent. Well, thank you all for coming today. And we're going to kick off the new issue by going through it. Think of it as a user's guide to what is actually in the issue, why you should buy the issue, why you should read the issue. And then also our three writers are going to talk through their pieces and discuss the research, the process that went into it, the writing process, which is different from research. And then also, you know, maybe touch on some things that they didn't get to in their own articles. So Nick, can you sort of begin? I guess, I guess the big question being... Kristen Stewart on the cover. Kristen Stewart on the cover. Well, we were going to have Blake Lively on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) But we were stopped in our tracks by her people who were very, very powerful. Uh, No, we had no such intention of doing that. Um, Kristen Stewart, it had to be Kristen Stewart. It could be no one else. It is, as we say, the age of Kristen Stewart. Um, Obviously, the two immediate reasons are that she has a couple of movies coming out in July, Cafe Society, and Equals, but actually this article grows more out of a couple of other movies that she's in. One premiered at Cannes this year, Personal Shopper, the latest film by Olivia Sais, and the other is Certain Women, uh, directed by Kelly Reichardt, that was at Sundance. And it just seemed like uh, the moment, I mean, it's not like we're like the first people to notice that Kristen Stewart has considerable talents that have been underappreciated. So, I, I, but it's definitely, you know, you can just see from these films, they, they somehow crystallize, especially Personal Shopper somehow is just a very, a performance that just kind of crystallizes um, what she's capable of. And it's interesting as a follow-up to Clouds of Sils Maria, yes, uh, which was a film she, the last film she did with Olivier Assize. So in this film, it's almost like, across the board, just kind of like a close-up on her. In a way, you can think of the whole film as, as, as that, in a way. She's on screen for you know, most of the movie. At times, it feels like every shot, she's there. Even when she's not there, she's there. Um, <laughs> and actually, that kind of being there and not being there is part of what's key to our cover article, which is by Nick Davis. He last interviewed Todd Haynes for us, for the movie Carol. And here, he's written a just beautiful and very nuanced and at times conflicted uh, appreciation of Kristen Stewart at this moment. Uh, Also looking at a couple of movies you might not think that he would look at, like Camp X-Ray, and as well as close readings of uh, her performances in Personal Shopper and Certain Women. I don't know how I would really sum it up, but part of it's that kind of presence and, and, and absence that she has, the capability of being having this casual complexity and plain spokenness to her style somehow, but mysterious as well. All of which is that 
star quality, star illusion that you're, you somehow know the person. Um, and I think maybe there's something particular about her abilities that, that seems to set so many people just rabid about her is, yeah. is that accessibility and mystery and, and the new way she does it compared to previous stars. Cause obviously that's been said of many past big Hollywood stars. Sorry. I think I've talked too much about this first. <laughs> no, one, but, you can never talk about enough about but, Kristen Stewart. Um, really? Yeah. She's a retweet machine as well. Hell yeah. She, she is, on yeah. Twitter. If only you could retweet magazines. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a business plan right there. Um, <laughs> that is a depressing 2016 business yeah, plan. Yeah, it is. Um, Our magazine is a retweet. So, so that, that's the cover article. And then the cover, the cover I hope... <laughs> I love how you're just trying to talk over Eric. S- sorry, I don't know. <laughs> so, he, he was mumbling. That's the way it's supposed to be. I done. have the stage. Piggy has the conk. Um, um, no, I'm sorry, Eric. Please. Can I read two sentences from Go the ahead. piece? Because I think it's beautiful. This is yes. something really oh, yeah. striking. I wanted to quote. Please do, yeah. I think my favorite run is, on one hand, her redoubtable poker face and trademark mannerisms, hunching, biting, or curling her lip, rolling her eyes amid unvoiced thoughts, looking down, looking far away while cupping her head or her hair, bespeak a tantalizing introversion that stories and scene partners long to unravel. On the other, the sheer ordinariness of these gestures collapsing any border between acting and behavior suggests something familiar, even ubiquitous, less the icon of an agitated generation than one of its many median exemplars, the needle, but also the haystack. It's really fantastic. And a voice, too. (laughs) We're going to get slapped with a parental advisory sticker. (laughs) (laughs) If we're not careful, Eric. Yeah. That was the exact phrase I was going to quote, actually. Was it? Ne- okay. The needle oh, and the haystack. Look so. at this. The needle and the haystack. Do you see how Kristen Stewart brings us all together? <laughs> she does, yeah. So, what do I do next? Do you want to. Yeah, you want to. Well, I was talking about the cover briefly because I, we did a lot of, I mean, a lot of care went into the cover. I don't know if people care about that sort of thing, but we certainly sweated over it's a, it. It's arresting. Um, yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously it could look like. It you know it's being titillating, but actually that was kind of far from her mind. It was really just this expression she has, the elsewhereness of her expression and her eyes and her, and you know and and the imagination, the act of thinking. I guess that's one cliche that that's one particular skill an actor can have is conveying a state of mind um, and, and and the act of thinking. And I think here she's really doing something, and it also captures just that kind of there and not there that Nick described so well in the uh, in the article well do you want to talk about wang bing since andrew chan cannot be with us today yes andrew chan wrote a great feature about wang bing who is a chinese filmmaker uh, known for his king-sized documentaries that i guess kind of respond to the cataclysmic changes in china with films of an equivalent weight and I guess in both senses of weight, they make they, they are durationally very long, but they also have a great deal of heft. And that's that's part of what Andrew goes into. I mean, he's best known probably for West of the Tracks still, which was this nine-hour portrait of three declining state-owned factories in northeast China, which almost sounds like a parody of <laughs> some old school, like, you know, social-minded documentary that someone would come up with in the 70s, but they're riveting. And uh, more recently, he's done Three Sisters, which follows these youngsters in a Chinese mountain village. Um, and they're just all ruddy from, I guess, some combination of exposure and malnutrition. I'm really selling these. Um, and then another one. <laughs> well, um, we did Straubouillet for last issue. Yeah, so yeah. 
I mean, it, it what Andrew Chan describes so well here is just the sense of time and the ravages of time, but also the exhilaration of it and the inherent human drama of just being. And I love this piece because it's it's almost not at all how you would expect someone to write about nine-hour and four-hour and five-hour Chinese documentaries about the gravest of social conditions. He writes about them, you know, as if he's writing about a Nathaniel Dorsky film, <laughs> <laughs> which is another feature in, in here, uh, or, you know, such a beautiful language. So, I don't know, go and read it. <laughs> <laughs> and then another one, another feature of, by a writer who's not presently here, a feature on Nathaniel Dorsky, who's the, the great experimental filmmaker, and this one's by Max Nelson. And this is in the model of just a kind of career overview feature. And he's basically a specialist in capturing all the nuance and beauty of light, especially passing through, you know, trees and kind of transporting lattice patterns. Uh, uh, also known as the man Sam Mendes ripped off for the plastic bag shot in American Beauty. Perhaps oh. best, unfortunately, best known. Really? Oh. What was the, um, the, oh. the reference? I had no idea. Oh, so in America... You've, you've ruined my childhood. No? <laughs> uh. Wait, this movie is in effect. <laughs> but uh, so there's a scene when they're Thora Birch and that guy with the very haunting eyes. Where's Bentley? Yeah. yeah. No, I know that bit, yeah, but yeah. I'm talking but about... They're watching, so they're watching the plastic bag and there's a one of Nathaniel Dorsky's films has mm. that exact just following the plastic bags it sort of twists and turns in the Does wind. Does it have the line as well? <laughs> no, they're all silent. <laughs> all of Nathaniel oh, Dorsky's films are silent right. so you just have silent. to... take it anymore. <laughs> Fill in the blanks. Yeah. Yeah, so... Actually, it's funny that you ask if there's the narration because it, it, he, like, the whole sort of premise, I think, of... or a lot, a big part of his concepts of transcendental cinema is that, you know, you're sort of... You're doing the work yourself. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And, and then after the screening, you know, you can have sort of this shared... In devotional cinema, he talks about seeing Voyage to Italy and then coming out of the theater and just coming down this elevator with a group of people who had seen it and just having this very shared, um, uh, like, emotional tenseness. But then no one actually said anything, but everyone sort of, like, just being completely on the same level as everyone. And it's, it's I'm not doing it justice. She's just, go, it's a it's a short book. Go on, read it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a book that uh, Nathaniel Dorsky wrote. So yeah, that's that. I, I feel like I, I don't. I should just stop because I don't. I just hate like narrating this magazine. We should just dive into yeah, we Eric's can... and Ashley's and Yonche's features. I will just also want to mention that this is our can issue, so we have coverage by, you know, uh, Amy Taubin, Kent Jones, Dennis Lim, uh, and myself, and the usual you know gamut of reviews, including the BFG. I know people want to know what Film Comment thinks of the BFG. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's Koreski and the BFG, it's so people do want to know. No less, it is Michael Koreski. Koreski. To say about the BFG. Yeah. Uh, our new editorial director on the BFG. Mm-hmm. So without further ado. Now we turn it over to the dreamers, the makers, the researchers, the people whose <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears. You're one of them, too. Uh, I am. <laughs> but to a lesser degree, not, not so much this issue. Ashley, I think I'll start with you because, you know, you've done a lot of research into uh, the history of black performance. You know, you've written a book, Facing Blackness, about which partially deals with the history of blackface in film and visual media. So um, could you talk about what 
your process for distilling some, you know, some of these larger things that you have worked on in your career into this feature? I think I'll start with um, a, f- a few months ago at the Museum of the Moving Image, there was a retrospective of Sidney Poitier, which was curated by Mia Mask. And it was a, it was really tightly curated. You know, it was, I think, eight films across two weekends. And in, in one of the introductions for one of the films, uh, Mia, who's a fantastic writer and, and professor, said something that kind of knocked me out. She said, and, and Sidney Poitier is, is underrated and and not not as well known as he should be and and I thought oh hang on that's crazy and then and then actually when I went and went and thought about it and and the actual extent of the work that he's done that people aren't necessarily familiar with people know about the big hits and it got me thinking about when people talk about minorities it's a terrible word but you know anyone basically anyone who's not white in in cinema <laughs> um they they do tend to focus on just headlines and and you you kind of sometimes forget you see Sidney Poitier as an icon mm-hmm. and what's le- less discussed is what these guys are actually doing on screen you know an appraisal of the performances so that kind of took me out of my blinders you know I'd been writing about bamboozled and the history of racism in, in American cinema and, and blackface and all that and I thought actually why wouldn't it be interesting to actually think about the people who came before Sidney Poitier and actually what they were doing on screen, not just in terms of, you know, names or figures or, or the first to do this, you know. Another thing is the first the first Oscar winner, this, the mm-hmm. statistics, isn't it? Rather than an actual appraisal of what people are, what people are doing. Uh, another aspect um, which has influenced this is uh, 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 the, the box set released by Kino Lorber, which is the pioneers of African-American cinema set, which is dedicated to a bunch of restored things called race movies, which were um, at the start of the 20th century. Uh, the, the most famous pioneer of those is a guy called Oscar Micho, who's, who's many, many of his films are lost. But these are films made um, with predominantly black casts, often with, often by black directors, although some white filmmakers got involved. And the, this is in a, a time of segregated America. So these are s- predominantly for segregated black cinemas. And um, there was this kind of amazing cottage industry that, that spanned 40 or 50 years. Um, obviously, you know, th- these films weren't necessarily well looked after, so hundreds of them are lost. And the end of race movies kind of coincided, ironically, with with integration. And the, the what's the word? I suppose, yeah, the integration of, of more famous black performers into white cinema. Mm-hmm. And that whole idea, of, uh, and rising costs of production and, and so on. There's many reasons. Um, so that's a lot of background. I decided to write about this piece and take three or four figures from a kind of pre-Poitier era. So you've got the first half of the 20th century to play with. I began with a guy called Burt Williams, who uh, was born in the Bahamas and moved to America at a very young age and became very famous on the stage, doing kind of minstrel acts and and vaudeville. And he wore blackface. He was a uh, black performer who wore blackface. He comes up in Spike Lee's film Bamboozled, as you know, Spike Lee in the film, which is a contemporary satire of, of blackface, where it comes back and it's a giant hit, kind of a, a producer's twist. The guy who makes this show is a, a black executive who's very frustrated and he wants the show to fail, but of course it becomes a huge runaway success. And something that was brave uh, that what Spike did and complicated the satire was he made it black actors in blackface. Well, I think when most people uh, think of blackface, they think of white actors in blackface. They'll think of uh, Al Jolson in, in The Jazz Singer. And 
even Fred Astaire and, and, and people like that who, who were doing it. It was very embedded into the culture. But it was also a, a, a black art form in a way too. So I focused on Burt Williams, whose films, one of whose films was re uh, rediscovered by MoMA a couple of years ago. So I wrote about him. I wrote about some of the stars of race movies and looked at you know the, 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 the footage I could find. There's clips on YouTube. There's this Kino Lorber box set to kind of look at the, the performance styles and, and how, how evocative they were and uh, what, what kind of techniques they were using. And I wrote about a very strange character with the marvelous name Madame Saltiwan. I'm not entirely sure what her real name is, but she was a star of... D.W. Griffith's very famous The Birth of a Nation from 1915, which is, a, as many listeners will know, is a film that's lauded for its technical merits and is studied in schools and universities worldwide, but is, of course, a tremendously racist piece of work and features white actors in blackface playing these terrible kind of caricatures of black savage rapists. But there is actually a, a black woman in the cast who through Stroke of Fortune, became friends with D.W. Griffith and became the very first um, black woman to sign a Hollywood contract with D.W. Griffith's company. And they remained lifelong friends. Um, and she had a career, uh, which I write about in my piece, which was sadly limited to roles of you know domestic servitude. And she, she was a contemporary of people like uh, Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen, both of whom starred in Victor Fleming's Gone with the Wind. And she was unable to transcend that kind of matrix of, of stereotypes, which are very well expressed in a documentary called Ethnic Notions by Marlon Riggs from 1986, which was one of my key tools for, for research, which it, you know, it does a lot of the, the heavy lifting and explains how these stereotypes of the coon and the tom and the, the buck and the maid, the mammy, were all kind of codified and have, have shape-shifted across the years into very different iterations. So uh, also, you know, to do with, to do with my programming, I, I did a series of, uh, of films influenced by and films that Bamboozled influenced. So that's always been in my thinking when I've, when I've been writing about this kind of thing. And it's related to a project that I can't really talk about yet, but which will be taking place in, in London uh, later in the year. But I'm sure I will be talking about all that at a later date, but I hope you enjoy my article. <laughs> and my book on Bamboozled is out now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what struck me while reading your piece was that, you know, these performers you wrote about are politically engaged people, but because they were working in the silent era, they only had their faces and their bodies to express their rebellion, not words. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this image of a performer kind of deprived of his voice, I think deeply reflects their sense of entrapment and maybe the kind of rage that they felt but that they couldn't express to its fullest extent because they had very few tools to do so. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And I think it, it feeds you know, into even the sound era. And there's a great quote that I, I tend to wheel out by James Baldwin, who talks about uh, black performers who had to smuggle in a reality into the script that they knew wasn't there. So you had someone like Sidney Poitier, who was almost neutered in some respects. You know, he had to, you know, according to the, the mores of the time, he had to play these kind of upstanding, you know, flawless individual. Sexless. Sexless, <laughs> flawless. So 
in his eyes and in, 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 in James Baldwin's book, The Devil Finds Work, um, which I think I've written about for the film comment, mm-hmm. actually. Um, it made the black film syllabus. Oh, did it? Yes. Congrat- you, just, you didn't know? Congratulations. Go me. <laughs> Go me. Um, so, yeah, and, and that idea of what a black performer through their physicality and through through their eyes and 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 the iconography who they are in a time and place what they're communicating to a black audience who needs them to be on the screen who needs to see that representation is going to be different to somebody in a different community who's not watching it with mm-hmm. with critical eyes but i like the point you make and that kind of intensifies the tragedy of of the silent of it you know literally being exactly. deprived of the the ability to verbalize um, and it's not like things got automatically better either. You know, that's something I'm very clear about in the um, in the piece that I write. You know, I, I end the piece in before the sound era kicks in. You know, and obviously what's the first big hit of the sound era? The jazz singer. So you're immediately codifying these stereotypes even further with the benefit of sound. And the next wave of stereotypes, I spoke about Butterfly McQueen and, and Hattie McDaniel. You know, these struggles have... It wasn't like they suddenly got better after this, but I thought it was really important to, to shine a light on this kind of thing. I also put but not, not, most sort of a, a different angle on, on that a little bit, which is that I also like the fact that you're writing about actors who aren't necessarily exemplars of, of, a, of a political consciousness either. You know, you've got, I mean, Burt Williams, as a, as an actor, is a, is a complicated man, mm-hmm. obviously, and was controversial in terms of his work. Oh, he's pilloried but, by, by, right. by the black press. But you're in a sense, in a sense, you're giving his due, like a complicated due, but you're giving it a, a due, the sense of like this is the man who was working during this time. This was, and you evaluate his work accordingly. I, I think that's really interesting too. I think there was, it's, there, it's, I, it's, 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 in some ways, it's tempting to just look for the heroes, and these aren't necessarily all heroes. Not at all. I mean, I had a line in there, I think, that was probably correctly cut um, because I didn't have time to properly explore it about Tyler Perry and how there's an analogy with this kind of mm-hmm. booming auteur businessman who's who's. I use the word pilloried by um, the black intelligentsia and and many critics and you look on Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic and Tyler Perry's films are the kind of the pits but he he does own what he's doing Mm -hmm. and there is that idea of uh, complicated spectatorship if you're playing something to a black audience who understands the nuances of it and we can all understand, you know, we can appreciate each other's characteristics and we can, we understand that this is, there's, there's folk roots here and, and, you know, we get some of the in-jokes. If you open that out to a wider audience, you risk being laughed at or being told that you're letting down the race or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, Bert Williams is somebody who has been widely criticised and he's been cast as a, a singularly tragic figure. Mm-hmm. He died quite young. Um, he, he kind of carried a sad aura around him. But some critics... Um, including a, couple, a pair that I've mentioned in the, the article who wrote a book called Darkest America, actually have positioned Burt Williams as an auteur, as somebody with mm. some authority over his image. He knew what he was doing. He was an intellectual. He wrote about, and he spoke eloquently about blackface as an art form and as a, as a racial critique, you know. And within this, you know, there's no time to talk about it now, I don't think, in any detail, but issues around skin tone and, and shade and colorism you know anybody who's been following the uh, nina simone zoe saldana clusterfuck to be, to be quite frank um in the last couple of years will know that these issues are are very live and even someone like jesse williams the other the other night yeah. you know he was criticized for for, for being light-skinned and and deflecting you know it, it's so complicated and mm-hmm. i you know i'm not in a position to, to kind of discuss it in the detail that it's mm-hmm. due now but but 
you know, that's... But Williams was, was a mixed race guy, you know, but he was... All, the, all of these things, you need a kind of understanding of race in America, of, of the one-drop rule, of, of mm. how people are coded as black and how people fit within that. So I've tried to... I've done my best to kind of throw some of those things in there so there's a grounding for people, but I think that there's a lot more out there. Mm. I'd also like to briefly uh, mention a book called Envisioning Freedom. Um, by an author called Kara Kadu, who I think is a professor at Bloomington. I brought it with me, Envisioning Freedom, Cinema and the Building of Modern Black Life, which is a wonderful piece of work that goes in detail on, on race movies, but what they meant to communities and, and how, you know, how they kind of help communities thrive and, and just kind of beyond textual analysis itself. So I'd like to recommend that. And it's been very helpful for me in my research. Well, you you just in a piece where there was a thousand theaters at at one point showing yeah, race films. Yeah, there was films. loads. It was it's incredible. Giant booming business. Well, and there's also you know non traditional spaces where these films were shown, like churches, community centers, yeah. etc. Mm -hmm. So in the box set, there's a a, series, a couple of films I think by a husband and wife filmmaking team called mm -hmm. James and Eloise Gist, who did a film called Hellbound Train, which is literally just an hour of. The, a guy dressed in a lycra jumpsuit <laughs> playing the devil, jumping around. Yep. And on each carriage, there is a different, another of the, the, the sins of the era manifest. So it's yeah. like someone is Very literally... Weird home have you Have you seen it? No, Oh, it's Oh, um, you've got to see it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> someone who literally dies. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> someone listens to jazz and dies. <laughs> <laughs> so after watching it, I went home and sold all my Weather Report LPs just, um, <laughs> just in case. Scared straight. But, but yeah, forever. But these films... Sorry, Kenny G. But these films um, <laughs> are incredibly, um, you know, artistically interesting. Mm. You know, it's easy to write them off as shoddy and kind of you know but oscar Micho has been criticized for his ineptitude however it, you know his his editing style is kind of in sync with jazz it's incredible totally. and it's very kind of fractured and interesting uh, and and the guests would kind of tour their their films deadly serious we can laugh at them now but these were supposed to scare people straight these mm -hmm. were supposed to save people show them the light and they yeah. would show them at churches and schools mm -hmm. so yeah this box set comes out in september whenever it comes out it's yeah. reviewed in the new issue but the, the pioneers it comes out in July, July. July yeah. it's fantastic yeah. check it out Yanja maybe you can talk about your well I wrote about Neither Heaven Nor Earth which is a metaphysical war movie by French artist filmmaker Clément Cogitor and it recounts the mysterious disappearance of four French soldiers from an Afghanistan outpost and basically the spiritual and psychological journey of the remaining soldiers as they cope with these supernatural events and try to uncover their cause. Mm -hmm. And so I interviewed Clément Cogitor in March when he came to present the film at New Directors New Films. And I mean, my article is obviously very different from yours because the text that I wrote, the introduction came after the interview. Mm -hmm. So it emerged from the interview. But I can briefly talk about, you know, how I approached the interview and what interests me, what interested me in the film. So um, I think, I think the film captures something really intrinsic to the 21st century, and what what was you know most radical for me in the film was Cogitor's depiction of what he calls the Western art of warfare, mm. which is basically the ways in which modern armies seize and qu control territories around the world. And also, you know, the tools and the technologies 
that are at the service of modern warfare. And um, we talked about this in the, in the interview, but it didn't make it into the final version. I'm thinking especially of these pixelated camouflage uniforms that the soldiers are wearing in the film. And what's particularly interesting about these uniforms is that thanks to the pixels that cover them, they make soldiers invisible to the sensors of drones and thermal cameras. So basically the goal of this camouflage is to make soldiers disappear for digital sensors before the human eye. And I thought, you know, this was fascinating because for me, it kind of put the phenomenon of disappearance in the film in a political context and kind of grounded it in reality and opened up the film for me. And I was just curious what the filmmaker is like. <laughs> what the filmmaker is like? He's a very he's a very calm person. I mean, he talked a lot. What I found very fascinating in in him what kind of really impressed me was that he's not only very well well versed in cinema, he, you know, he knows as much in anthropology, in history, in art history. And he approaches cinema from all these different perspectives. And it, that was really refreshing and kind of and promising and, you know, admiring to see that. Because as someone who, you know, who went to film school, I really felt a lack of, of an examination or even an appreciation of cinema through you know different art forms or let alone you know different intellectual disciplines so that was really really impressive in him i thought debunking the myth of the uh, liberal arts education yes, exactly. that's good but uh, you're also familiar with his visual art. Could you sort of give a, just a sense? Is, does it deal uh -huh. with similar themes? Is it sort yeah. of, uh, is it video-based or? <clears throat> well, I'm not familiar with his video, with his gallery art, but I, you know, I looked at excerpt of, excerpts of his videos and images. Familiarized. That's right. <laughs> I familiarized myself with his work on his website. Mm. And at first, you know, what I wanted to, I was very interested in learning how he kind of made the shift from his abstract visual work mm -hmm. to narrative filmmaking. Because, you know, this is a visual artist who, even though he's done a couple of semi-narrative shorts, has mainly done abstract and to a certain extent experimental work. And so, you know, but the film has a very conventional kind of narrative structure. Mm -hmm. But then when I kind of familiarized myself, when I got a firmer grasp on his work, I realized that it's actually, the film doesn't actually represent such a departure from the work. It's, act, it's actually an extension of the work in the way that it blends, you know, different tones and registers, in the way that it kind of juxtaposes political and aesthetic concerns. And another thing that was very interesting in the film for me was this kind of transition from objective narrative to subjective narrative. Mm. So the film essentially starts like a documentary. You know, we get to know these soldiers, we're immersed in the routine of this military camp, and as the soldiers start disappearing, the film gradually acquires this very surrealistic and psychological feel. And there you really feel Kojitov's experience as a visual artist, because he's gonna start doing these very interesting, you know, formal experiments. 
and he really treats the second part of the film in a very plastic way. And he really puts us, you know, in the shoes of these soldiers and really makes us inhabit their, you know, disintegrating or degrading psyches. For instance, at the beginning of the film, there's these night scenes in which he literally plunges you in the point of view of the soldiers by filming through their goggles and you literally get to see what they see, right? These sorts of blurry infrared images. And then in, in the sort of chaotic final act of the film, he completely blends all the perspectives and you, again, you see these infrared shots, but now they don't really come from anywhere. You know, it's completely disembodied. There's no motivation. And it's interesting because for me, the film kind of became a horror film at that point as well, because you basically start watching scenes from an unseen monster's perspective. It's mm. fascinating. And that, that comes out in August, I think. <laughs> right? Yes. Line up your money, people. Line up your money. Get ready. Actually, I believe it's showing at the Film Society. Yes, it is. Eric, you also, or did you have a question? Well, I was, I was actually going to say that reading through this interview, there's a, there's a quote that I think mm-hmm. actually links up quite well with some of the stuff that I was working through and thinking about for my piece, which mm-hmm. is, which I'll read, it says, uh, uh, Clement goes, uh, I don't think that human experience ever happens outside of belief. Rationalism is also a belief in its own way. The human psyche to construct communities, to construct civilizations, to construct a model must at some point substitute belief for the fundamental enigma of the world. And uh, and that really resembles the, so the, the, the quote that I start my piece off on uh, from Joan Didion. It's from the, the basically the very beginning of the White Album, one of the great essays that uh, when I read, uh, sort of was shocked by how that echoed with uh, the project of, of Robert Greene and the film that he was making, Kate Plays Christine, but then also I think through an entire movement or, or generation of filmmakers. So for the sake of that, then I guess I'll just read that quote from Didion, I apologize for the turning of pages on the radio. Oh, God. It's authentic. <laughs> it's authentic. Yes, it is. It is real. Which is, I'll read this and then I'll, and I'll actually talk about what the piece is. Sure, yeah. Um, so it's a, we look for the sermon and the suicide, for the social or moral lesson and the murder of five. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. Mm. So I, this goes back a, a, a little bit of time. Uh, the, so I guess there were two things that were going on that were meeting in the same place for me, uh, which is that over the last several years of, of just writing about film, I, I, I found myself being attracted to, interested in documentaries that were sort of done creatively or mm-hmm. formally adventurous and and sort of organically found my way to writing about them and writing about filmmakers. And uh, and, and one of those people that along the way that uh, I, I just started a dialogue with was, was Robert Greene, somebody who I knew very glancingly from when we both worked at Kim's Video like <laughs> 15 years ago and, uh, and re-met him along the way at a film festival and a friendship struck up, but then also a conversation struck up. And I, I think we found like there was similar interests and similar things that we were attracted to and, 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 and wanted to explore independently in me through writing him through, through filmmaking. But <laughs> along the way, part of the way that he would talk about his work 
was to disparage journalism and to make a hard distinction between what he was doing and journalism. And because I, I, I think I, I, mean, I understood where that was coming from. I understood, um, and this I don't get a chance to go into this piece too much. There, there is basically a reaction to the years preceding um, that the idea of 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 documentary being about politics, there being an agenda, there being about impact, um, that uh, they're basically sort of filmed reportage. uh, And these were filmmakers that were really reacting. And Robert was probably, because he also writes about film as well as making films, became a voice against, no, we are not journalists, we are artists. And I think that there is a, um, and and that becomes the, 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 the conversation. Like, we are, we are filmmakers, we are artists, we are not journalists, or we're not necessarily journalists. But I would hear this, and I'd go, well, that makes a lot of sense within this conversation within film. But if you think about the history of journalism, and you think about the conversations that exist outside of film, um, it's never been that simple. Um, and furthermore, for me, the new journalism movement would always pop into my head, and I would always use that in conversation. I was like, well, no, actually, these were people who called themselves journalists. They owned the idea of journalism of this as as being what they do, um, and that was controversial. But they were not throwing out the notion of journalism. New journalism is a term that's sort of bandied about very yeah. freewillingly. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you sort of define it for? No, no, no. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the idea. I mean, that's it's funny. Like even sitting here and talking about this, part of what is challenging to talk about it now and talking about this article, which challenging about their article, is mm-hmm. that these are not things you can really put your hands around. This, right. What you're doing right now is new journalism. <laughs> yeah, well, the piece itself really aligns with new journalism. Well, and that was the idea. Right. That, that was the that was the attempt, at least. Yeah. Um, but I mean, new, I mean, new journalism is is it's it wound up being basically defined by a group of people right. over a period of time, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's basically a way of approaching nonfiction writing creatively, and 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 in a sense drawing from, from fictional techniques, but I think going beyond that as well. And and so you've got people like Tom Wolfe and Gay Talese and Grover Lewis and Joan Didion and uh, Norman Mailer and, and, and various other figures like this that, yeah, I think in some ways these people wind up defining uh, Andres Thompson, the new journalism is more than what new journalism is. And I think there's a similar thing, and I try to make this equation, what's going on in nonfiction filmmaking right now too, where nobody knows what to call it. You know, I mean, I wrote, a small booklet for a true false film festival a couple of years ago. And they wanted to, they were commissioning writers to talk about these uh, issues in a historical basis. And they kind of slapped the word chimeric cinema onto mm. the piece in retrospect. Cause they were like, we're going to name it. We're going to do it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, but, and that hasn't stuck. And nor right. would it, I mean like the, nothing is st- going to stick because it's an ill-defined thing. And you could look at any of these pieces and feel like, Oh, well this is a thing. This film is like a thing that I saw 50 years ago or that I saw 30 mm-hmm. years ago, as much as you would say, this is part of a movement now. I mean, it's very hard to define it. To me, it's, and what I tried to get into it by writing it in a certain way and by seizing on certain things that Robert was doing in making this Kate Blaze Christine film was, was it's more of almost like a, 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 a philosophical and moral approach to, to making the thing more than some external mm-hmm. definition of what it is. So the idea of, of not having an answer going in and, and, and not having a, a, a form waiting for you to fill your film into, but to let a form arise through the filmmaking. Is it more about what it's not? Maybe. Because you Tell know, me what you mean by that, yeah. Just, just the idea, I think, that, that we, you grow up 
I grew up with the idea that somehow doc it's it's in the language of it somehow documentary confers truth, right? And there are certain tropes that pop up. You know, you'll see an expert with a caption mm. sat in front of a bookshelf, or yeah. or there are issue documentaries which will you know show an objective you know truth and, and try and prove a point and try and change the world, and there are certain kind of strains of documentary filmmaking that have. <laughs> I, I, I always feel with, with Robert's work in particular and, and a lot of the things you mentioned are deliberately rebelling against that idea of mm-hmm. worth, worth, ideas of worthiness and, mm-hmm. you know, showing a, a broader truth about something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think what you're saying in terms of what they're not, uh, yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons, I think it's just, and up on a personal level, it's why I want to keep writing about it and want to keep thinking about it because it's hard to, to pin down. It's hard to put your thumb on it and go right that's it let's move on um because it, it in general it's something that's hard to define but also i feel like on a subject story basis that's how i want at least that's how i want to view the world i want to think that there's not some rule that i can apply to everything that i'm seeing and experiencing that something can beyond simple comprehension so that i have to use language or look at a film to make sense of it I wonder if you could just give a couple examples of these sort of films that you're talking about, or, or maybe the film that was like a breakthrough for you where you're like, oh, I have to mm. complete this just, you know. I mean, and you also yeah. should probably tell a bit about what this particular this film is. Film is sure, sure. <laughs> um, well, let's maybe I'll start with that. I mean, I, uh, this film is, and again, Robert is a friend of mine, and a, the second thing I was going to say before is that part of it was attracted me to this and that I thought maybe I could approach it as a new journalist or, or at least with that ethos um, was that the idea that that was also part of what happened around that time is that people wrote first person uh, reportage uh, and the fact that we were friends was actually an opportunity as much as it was something that would prevent me from writing about it. Um, and the way that Robert would describe this film, Cape Plays Christine, I could never picture it. And so basically it's a film about, and that attracted me very much, um, it's a film that is basically uh, Robert making a movie about an actress named Kate, uh, Caitlin Scheel, uh, who is um, preparing to play Christine Chubbuck, uh, a woman who um, is sort of only known for committing suicide on camera in 1974 in Sarasota, Florida for local television. And there's very little known about this woman. There's very little record of it. There's no, there's, there's, it's, uh, except for the one live time, the one time that, that this happened on camera live, which was probably seen by less than a thousand people. There's nobody's seen this. And, and there's one long form Washington Post article that was written in the weeks following. So there's very little to go on. So basically it's Kate examining and studying closely that article and going to Sarasota, Florida and interviewing people and trying to go into spaces that she may have passed through and homes that she lived in to get some sense of who she was so that she could play her. Except playing her is kind of built into it as being uh, it's the it's effectively a soap opera. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a it's an overdone, overplayed, salacious sort of version of her life. And so there are just these different planes. There is the documentary of Kate playing this character and there's also Kate being this character um, in these uh, sort of sectioned off uh, uh, dramas and that these two things coming together and uh, as the film goes on so that's that does that do a good job of starting with the film oh yeah is? definitely then uh, I guess yeah. a, a, a person might ask does the film exist that she's rehearsing for 
or that she's on production. No, it's very much like, in a sense, it's sort of like Act of Killing, the Act of Killing, the Joshua Oppenheimer film, in the sense that you see people making a movie that's not going to exist separate from the film itself. Yeah. But then there's the other twist, which was the other film yes. uh, <laughs> that turned up at Sundance by Antonio Campos. Yes. Like called Christine. Called Christine. Yeah. Yes. And... Uh, yeah, I mean that that film has its fans, and and I'm interested to see that go out into the world and that being part of a conversation. That's a more straightforward biopic, isn't it? It's more of a straightforward biopic, yeah. And I think has a right to be that. <laughs> it's it's hard when there's not when there's another film made about the same subject. It's inevitable that Robert's film is going to be a critique of that film, even while it's not actually a critique of that film, because there are methods. Of employed by a straightforward biopic that I think Robert's sort of fighting against that I do write about a little bit too is the idea of of it's very hard not to write to, to make a, a, a fiction film about somebody's life without coming up with answers for why somebody might have done something. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to say, here is the character flaw or here is the psychological basis. Here is the, the thing that happened in this person's life that led to this thing that happened. It's a, you, you, have, you almost have to do that as a screenwriter. And so there you have to do that in making a fiction film. Robert's whole approach is to sincerely try to understand this woman but also the entire time being weighed down by the fact that we're just not going to get there. So that approach and that philosophical idea does run against what a film like Christine is doing. I don't think that necessarily means that one is better than the other um, or that one should enjoy one more than the other, but I do think that idea is hard to, to get around. I think once once you seize on that and think that's a legitimate idea, it's hard then to, to, to see the answers that a fiction film can come up with and, and think... Why does it have to be that way? I had that biopic moment a few years ago when I watched um, a film called 32 Films about Glenn Gould, 32 short films about Glenn Gould, a Canadian pianist, which was spoofed in The Simpsons yes. in, in one episode. <laughs> and once I saw that, which was this kind of deconstructed documentary, as you know, as per the title, lots of short, discrete shorts, some kind of straight into nonfiction, I couldn't watch a biopic after that. Mm-hmm. You know th- that kind of ge- th- these generic trappings that you talk about—the idea of psychologizing somebody from from birth to death mm-hmm. and picking out these transformative moments. You know, most people's transformative moments they don't even know until they've happened, or what, long after. Yeah, <laughs> You're like sure, yeah. one of us could have had one in this very room, <laughs> and none of us would know it. You know, until until a few weeks later. But it, that it plays into that that kind of documentary, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the nonfiction thing. And how you know? I think it's a, it's a steadfast avoidance of certain generic trappings, right. which keep showing up in these films, which I find really interesting. And you, and you really kind of go into that in your piece really well, I think. But I mean, I, one of the things that I mean, I, I I think about in terms of the new journalists and how they often get written about, and Robert and some of these other filmmakers and what they're doing is gets written about. I do think there sure there are a lot of filmmakers that are that are approaching this clash between fiction and nonfiction and blurring that line. And absolutely. And that's, that's a legitimate way of talking about it. But I guess I'm more interested as I go on in the third path, mm-hmm. you know, and, and seeing in the new journalists, these, these attempts at a third path, like mm-hmm. not, it's not applying fiction to nonfiction. It's doing, it's writing in a certain way right. that is a third way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yes, it's factual. Yes. It comes from reality, but there's all this sort of subjectivity and creativity and reaching for a form within that that leads to some third solution that seems to me like 
I guess what I'm interested in when we talk about art and, uh, I don't know. And so, and so you see that in, and I think in, in, in some of what Robert's doing, and I do think some of these filmmakers, people like Robert, people like uh, the Ross brothers, people like Margaret Brown and, and, and obviously Joshua Oppenheimer and, 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 and just to a certain degree, Laura Poitras too, mm-hmm. somebody who's coming from reporting and is a tremendous journalist and owns it. And everyone would agree to some degree, but I think what everyone would, would agree with that. And yet I think as she goes further on, she starts thinking about formal issues and pushing that so that it's, some other third thing and and mm-hmm. I'm just really interested in in that idea. Well, I was curious to know um, whether you sort of wrote the introspective, you know, almost journal entry passages when you were on set mm. or did you write them, you know, as you were piecing the whole article uh, article. No, I mean I I wrote them. I mean I wrote I, I took some a, a lot of notes. I mean there is a there's a passage there that's brief here and online. I'm going to try to open this up a little bit more for the online version. But uh, there's one where I kind of adopt Kate's perspective a little bit. And that was actually almost entirely taken from notes that I took in conversation okay. with her. That was probably the closest oh, okay. to what I did on set, which was uh-huh. like unofficially interviewed her in casual settings, mm-hmm. took those notes, and then basically adopted her language in, in that in that way in terms of like the 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 moment to moment Uh type journal entries no that was that was done afterwards really yeah oh it was very immediate (laughs) (laughs) oh and the spoiler eric's piece is going to go online in an expanded form as you just alluded to still by the magazine yeah Uh, (laughs) (laughs) well i think i think nick will probably think that you know the the magazine version is more concise and probably going to be they're, better they're in the different, end. They're different. There's so many ways to approach. They're just like Christine. What we call reality. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So called. But I also what I what I was just going to mention quickly is that the the um, the article is also accompanied by photos from his his embed, if you want to call that, <laughs> in the in the production of Kate plays Christine that Eric himself took, and they're a wonderful compliment and, and to the article. And in some ways, I think they actually look like stills from yeah, they look yeah. like in some ways they look like they could have been scenes from the movie. In yeah. some cases, they are scenes being shot of the movie, right. but they they like add to the kind of kaleidoscopic, um, you know. Uh, you know, attempt to get a bean on on, on reality and Hall on of realism and on. Well, I would I would say yeah. that that that's a, a benefit of uh, the oddity of being on set for a documentary being made, but then the benefit of it being a basically four person crew uh-huh. right. is that I could get pretty close right. to what was happening. You know, um, I don't I, I don't know how anybody actually felt about me being around. I thought they were OK with me being there. Um, I think I was friendly with everybody to some degree going in. So, well, there was a certain acceptance. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. So they quite, probably didn't know what it was going to become. Well, can you tell the guy? I think you've told me a story or two about things that happened on during the visit where you kind of, I don't know, had these moments of. Not you know is this really working? Can this really work? I don't know if you want to tell one of those. Well, one of those stories is going to be in the is going to be yeah, in the expanded be the version. Okay. But uh, because it's yeah, one don't of those give things. it all away. <laughs> well, but this will this will be a good teaser because uh, there is like yes, I I showed up and watched a friend make a movie. That's a th- that, there's no way around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't have gotten that close if it hadn't been a friend. So I think that there are certain things that I was afforded that are valuable um, because of that intimacy. One of those things also that comes out of that is the fact that um, 
there was there was some sort of emotionally brutal moments and things that I was exposed to as a journalist, but then also as a friend that were very hard to manage. And so there is there's one there's one incident in particular that I'm going to be writing about that. <laughs> Hopefully Robert doesn't hear this before I write it, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, which uh, I'm dying to get into because it was uh, it, it it really was hard in moments to figure out exactly who I was supposed to be, and and I felt that in a small group of people making a documentary in a town like Sarasota, there were moments where the the world didn't know either mm. what to do about that. So it'll be interesting, hopefully. Well, with that bit of intrigue, I think we can end it. But in the spirit of last 10 films, let's each go around and say a movie that we saw recently that we liked. Nick, you can start. I watched a beautiful Blu-ray of The Chase, uh, which is a great film noir. <laughs> I think it's called The Chase. Did I just pick it up? Yeah, but I love the way you said Blu-ray. <laughs> I, I thought the whole thing was a title. Yeah. <laughs> a beautiful Blu-ray. <laughs> it's a, it sounded very theatrical. The yeah. entire history yeah. of the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> no, I watched, uh, it's called The Chase, and it's a great film noir with, I, I, I'm not sure if it involves amnesia or a psychotic break. I guess it's some combination of two. Of course, it ha involves a, a war veteran. Uh, and of course, there's a femme fatale he gets involved with, and 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 the gangster um, whose sidekick is Peter Lorre, and there's just this break that happens in the movie. I guess two thirds way through, um, which is is eerie in, in a way uh, that you rarely see, even in film noir. It's like it's something on like it's Phantom Lady grade, you know, odd. Um, so I, I really liked it. It looked beautiful, and the commentary was by Guy Madden, so that was entertaining. Oh. Former and former columnist. Former columnist, but why former? What happened? Film comment. Well, he had to make movies, and yeah. his column. He's a grandpa. He's got a lot he's of stuff on his plate. He's got a lot on his plate. But he's a nice <laughs> you sound like you know him very he's a, well. He's, he's a grandpa. He is. Grandpa. <laughs> grandpa guy. He's got a, anyway. he's got a trick knee. <laughs> He has a doctor's appointment bend the knee. next yes. week at 4.30 yes. on Monday. Anyway, so I saw uh, Birth, which is... Uh, <gasps> which, um, all I'm going to say is that I, well, I really liked it a lot, and I think it's probably one of the most... Is that the Glazer? Yeah, Jonathan Glazer. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I'm... Yeah, he's it's an amazing, astonishing movie. It is, it is, and I also, I mean, it was funny because I was talking uh, with my boyfriend afterwards about it, and you know, he cited Roger Ebert's review, and he was like, the twists at the end or near the end, uh, Roger Ebert referred to it as a cop out, and I strongly disagree with that because I think to say that is a cop out is to reveal who you're actually identifying with in the film and whose story you think it is, and it's it is not the little boy's story. It is Nicole Kidman's story. Giving, you don't give the story. You you I'm not giving it away. I'm not saying what the twist <laughs> what, is. What but about I'm... the close-up though in the uh, in the theater oh on, on Nicole Kidman? It's amazing. It's amazing, and I mean, it's it's like a fastbender drama. It's not sick for the reasons that you think it's sick. So, highly recommend seeing it if you have not seen it or just watch it again. And it took such a kicking. And he's only made three films uh, as well. Sexy Beast, Birth, and yeah, Under the Skin. And it's they're both so, so idiosyncratic. Yeah, all, it's, all it's criminal. It's like you watch this and you're just like, he should be making one every year. Like, why is not... Like, more people absolutely should be giving this man mic. But here you go, Ashley. Um, in search of my own chimeric 
third way. <laughs> I, I've binged on OJ, Made in America. Yes. Uh, oh, that's so um, good. To, to compliment my earlier binging of, what was it? The People versus OJ Simpson. American mm-hmm. Crime Story. American Crime Story. Um, I suppose it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, do, you know, do, documentaries. And, but this is more in the kind of a medium sense in terms of, does it count as a film? Right. Uh, if it's played at festivals or back to back, which I think it, play, it played at Tribeca. This, the Florida episode should have been like two episodes. Yeah, like the I mean, Florida chapter of his life is unbelievable. Yeah, like, it's, it's incredible. These are kind of 90 minute chunks of just beautiful mm-hmm. storytelling, mm-hmm. multi-layered and uh, yeah, really, I know we haven't got much time, so I really recommend, recommend watching it. Well, I was going to, that was one of the, I was going to mention that as well. So maybe we'll just double our time and talk about this for a second. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, I, I'm, I'm sort of making my way through it a second time because I'm just, I'm, I, I find it, I'm marveling at, at what it does in terms of narrative and all the places that it goes. Um, and I think, uh, I, I think philosophically, I deeply believe in it too, because it uses all that time and I think thwarts any easy sense of, of who he is, yeah. who he was, what happened, mm-hmm. how, what he represents, who, what he's supposed to represent, what's legitimate, what's not legitimate. All that is left up in the air rather than resolved in the end. And I don't think as a as a dodge, I think it's mm. just true. Well, it seems to accept, doesn't it, that yeah. we don't know. It, it, almost, uh, very early on, it seems to say that O.J. Simpson was, was a kind of curator of his own image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once we accept that and that we're never going to know who he th- does he even really know who he was right. at any given time. Right. Right. It, it, it gives an incredible sense of freedom and it gives so much more weight to what other people have to say about him. Yeah, I agree. And the themes that, um, that are riffed upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was also like, because I, I was nine when that trial began and I had no concept of who he was. I mean, even the, you know, the People versus O.J. Simpson American Crime Story, like that doesn't even t- scratch the surface of like, what this trial really Meant. Well, I think it's why the first two episodes are so important. That oh, it takes nearly four hours to get you to that point so that if you did not live through that, you would have a sense of how absurd this was. Yeah. That this could be happening, yeah. which is definitely how it felt for mm-hmm. for, for, for people who are my age or older. Mm-hmm. So. Nyanja, to close. Uh, I actually watched Once Upon a Time in Anatolia again mm-hmm. the oh. other day in light of the events in Turkey. And I think, I mean, it's an extraordinary film. It really captures the contemporary anxieties of the country so well. And, you know, like the kind of fright and uncertainty that's even more present now because people are literally playing hide and seek with death every day. So I think it's a very, very valuable film. And I hope that Jaylan in his next film sort of returns to that sensibility because winter sleep was really not <laughs> in that territory. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all so much for coming. This was excellent. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comet, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.